And good morning, RadioNext.tv, live from the Collaborate 317. RadioNext.tv Studios, you're on Cool Groove Radio, Dr. Mark Echo, Harold H.B. Bell, Warp and Wolf Radio, here every Wednesday morning, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Dr. Mark, what's happening, man? Oh, man, we got something going on today. We're going to do something that I hope will become perhaps a monthly thing, uh, and that is we're going to focus on the headlines uh, that are kind of chewing up some of the news cycles that, quite frankly, we don't hear an awful lot about. So I read an awful lot online. I read books, articles. I get all kinds of journals and magazines in my house. And I thought, you know what? We need to just do a show every month that deals with some of the interesting ideas that are floating around out there that, quite frankly, don't get an awful lot of play. Now, we know what the headlines are every single day. We understand what's going on in Washington right now. Uh, we see what's going on in Hollywood right now. But I was interested to say to people, you know what, there's an awful lot more news out there than what we are connected to. So we're going to be bringing some of those things up today, and we have a whole bunch of articles that I think are really very interesting and uh, all kinds of things, stuff from uh, archaeology, biblical archaeology to uh, the hookup culture to uh, gifted students in classes and how do we teach those folks better to whether or not money buys happiness, all kinds of different things like this. We're going to actually start off uh, after our break talking about uh, my class that I'm taking right now at IUPUI from a, a fantastic professor, Jane Schultz, who, by the way, is the research prof behind the hits PBS series entitled Mercy Street. Uh, that particular uh, show ran for two years, and she was the brains behind it. A uh, marvelous, marvelous professor. And I actually have a paper due today, HB. I don't know. We'll see where this thing lands. Uh, you, hey, you never get bored when you go back to school, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, we're expecting, uh, the, you know, good things coming up in 2018. You and Dr. Clyde Posley, who is away today, yeah. um, normally will be manning this helm and uh, just looking forward to that. What we're going to do is take one break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the hookup, and we're going to talk about everything going on in the Christian community. This is Warp and Wolf Radio on the Cool Group site. And we are back, Warp and Woof Radio, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. And today we are going to do something quite different from our normal approach to our radio show, uh, something I hope that we'll be able to do every month. Uh, as uh, HB mentioned, uh, co going out to the last break, uh, Dr. Clyde Posley will be joining us every week uh, from here on out. He's actually on the East Coast right now, uh, coming back this weekend. <clears throat> Looking forward to seeing him again. And he and I will be co-hosting Warp and Woof Radio, uh, bringing a very interesting perspective, uh, not because uh, we have uh, just the same PhDs or because we have the same uh, viewpoints or whatever it might be, but we are actually coming at this from a, a decidedly same direction. That is, we are connected from a Christian point of view, we're going to use Scripture as our final authority. This is very important and uh, really exciting for those of us who are committed to understanding what the Scriptures teach about all things. So what I wanted to do uh, to come into this particular episode was to actually talk a little bit about something I mentioned going out into the last break, and that was this uh, new class that I'm taking at IEPY. For those of you who are not sure or don't know, one of the things that uh, we do at Comenius is actually send me back to school, uh, which is really kind of cool because it gives me an opportunity to interact with not only college students but college professors, and I have met some of the finest professors. 
at IUPUI. I want to just give a shout-out to all of them uh, that I've had in the past and I will have in the future. Really excellent professionals. Know their subject areas. Their content is uh, unequaled. Uh, their approach to their subject matter is fantastic. Um, I'm really enjoying the graduate work that I'm doing in the English Literature Department there at IUPUI. Well, this particular semester, uh, Jane Schultz offered a course uh, that she opened up not just to undergrads but now to grads, and there are a few of us in the class that are in the grad school in the MA program. And this particular course is entitled Civil War Literature and Culture. And I'm telling you what, just because I'm a lifelong learner and because I love to learn and I love to read and analyze and write and all that kind of stuff, I am having a high old time. Well, this particular first uh, paper that uh, I'm delivering is uh, coming out today, actually. Uh, one of the things that is true after Martin Luther King Jr. Day is that you actually have uh, this space uh, so that you don't have an awful lot of time to get into the first class. And somebody had to take the first assignment. So I just said, well, you know, I'll go ahead and present the first paper. Mm -hmm. So this is me. Uh, here's the title of my paper, just to kind of get your juices flowing. I don't know what this is going to do for you, but here's the title of my paper. Incarnational Hermeneutics at the Bar of Literary Justice, an Analysis of Descriptive Selections from Life and the Iron Mills. Now, for those of you who are wondering what program you just turned tuned into, here is the bottom line. This particular piece comes from the middle 1800s. It's a story about a person, well, a group of people, actually, mill workers in awful, horrendous working conditions. And what uh, Rebecca Harding Davis does in her novella, her short story, Life in the Iron Mills, is to explain to us the plight of the worker in the mid-1800s. And so what I did was examine uh, some of the things that I discovered there, and we're going to talk about it in class today. I tell you all of that to say this. When we study history, when we study literature, this stuff ought to hit us right between the eyes because the stuff that's going on in our culture today in 2018 is no different than what we're reading in history. I'm going to read you my first paragraph. You get the sense of things. Here it is. Great speeches move crowds to tears and cheers. Great literature changes internal barometers. Great histories convince the present that past work is unfinished. Great ethnographic narratives, ethnographic means you're writing about somebody's life, great narratives about people's lives hold a mirror to our humanness asking this question, now, what will you do? And there is the issue. So one of the reasons why I'm going back to school is not only to further education and give new opportunities and all of that, but quite frankly to unearth some of the great principles that we found in history and literature, and we're going to bring those things back to light. And I just wanted to give a shout-out to my professor, Dr. Uh, Jane Schultz, this morning, her great work at IUPUI and this wonderful class with a great group of folks that I'm with. I wanted to uh, just now hit some of the, uh, the articles that I've been reading uh, lately, and they take on all different kinds of colors and hues here. So hang on, because we're going to be ping-ponging around all kinds of ideas and topics. And I think that at some point, something's really going to grab us uh, and grab you as the listener. So the very first thing I want to talk about is this uh, biblical archaeology. There's been some new uh, developments in archaeology. For those who don't know, archaeology is when a bunch of folks who are experts in their fields go out and dig in certain plots of ground, uh, usually in ancient uh, areas of life, and especially as Christians, we're interested in Middle East excavations. 
And what they do is they unearth uh, just ideas and things and and existing uh, concepts or or pieces of pottery or rings or whatever it might be that kind of shed new light on what does biblical history teach. Well, one of the newest discoveries, not only year, uh, some years ago we discovered that David was actually mentioned in history and in archaeology, that was a big deal, but now we have an, a seal that is on a ring, on somebody's ring that has been discovered in Israel, and this seal is the seal of a biblical governor of Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who are not into any of this stuff, this might not mean an awful lot to you except for this point. What we discover over and over and over again is that the Bible is affirmed not just in uh, scientific analysis and sociological study, but again and again it's confirmed throughout history. And specifically now we're talking about archaeology. So if you want to uh, check any of these kinds of things out, uh, check out uh, John, uh, Eric Metaxas's uh, commentary that we find on CNS News, uh, another confirmation of biblical history uncovered in the Holy Land of Israel. And this is another confirmation, uh, once again, of the history of God's Word. Now, why is that so important to us? Well, let me just give you one of Eccles' many mantras. The basis for Christianity is history. If Christianity does not have history... That is a person like Jesus who lived in space and time and in Jesus' case died, rose again, and lives today. If those things are not true, then Christianity crumbles. The whole point behind the Christian emphasis, the whole point behind the Christian message is based in history. And that's, the why, some, that's why something like today, uh, today's article, the very first article I wanted to emphasize, is very, very important to us. Now, here's another one. This, this comes out of the New York Times. This is an account, uh, actually, of a young woman who gives a first-hand analysis, a first-hand narrative of something that might be kind of, uh, we, some of us might be a little squeamish to talk about. But quite frankly, it needs to be talked about. It was on the front page of the New York Times. So here it is. This particular woman's narrative was on the hookup culture. For those of you who don't know what the hookup culture is, it simply means that people are doing one-night stands for sex, whatever that might mean for them. Maybe it goes on for some time. But it is all about the physical attraction of people. So I wanted to uh, note, however, some of the comments that she makes in this particular article so that you understand why this was so interesting to me. Here is what she says, again, a first-hand analysis from a young woman about this culture in which we live that's obsessed uh, with hooking up with people for sex. And this is what she says. For some reason, I've always been susceptible to thinking that my life would be vastly improved by the solution to a single problem. In high school, I thought, it will get better when the braces come off or when my skin clears up or when I go to college. And now that I'm older and supposedly wiser, I find myself thinking it will all get better when I find romance. When I have a man who wants me despite how fallible, loud, or political I can be. That night that she was with this particular individual, I hadn't been looking for romance, but my two-time lover embedded himself in my consciousness when he told me that I was the girl of his dreams. And I can't help but think how cruel that was, considering how it all turned out. Our goodbye was a kiss on the mouth and a wink as he stepped off the subway. He had grinned and said, I'll see you later. But he never saw me again. And I have since learned that later, 
means the same thing it did when I was a child and wanted to do something extravagant. It means I don't want to or if I feel like it. Now, I don't know about you, when you hear something like this, but I'm, when I'm reading this, first of all, I feel tremendous empathy for this particular individual who has this uh, grave uh, problem that she's struggling with in her own person. And that grave problem that she's struggling with is finding somebody to be committed to her. Well, let me just provide a little bit of analysis to this. The issue of commitment is a two-way street. Commitment has to go both ways. It has to go between the man and the woman and from the man back to the woman again. And for those of us who are thinking about these kinds of things from a decidedly Christian vantage point, we're really concerned about marriage. That is that you commit to somebody for all of life, and that means monogamy, one person for all of life. And what we are emphasizing here is that commitment, this loyalty, this, this idea that no matter what happens, we will always be together, is essential for the longevity of not only this relationship that this young woman is looking for in the New York Times, but it provides stability. It provides stability for our young people, for our family, for our children, those who are growing up in our homes. It provides stability for the culture around us. When people look at us and say, wow, you've been married for 38 years? Yeah, that's right. Robert and I have been married for 38 years. That is a long time. And people are amazed by this. But they're amazed by this because they live in a culture like we, I was just reading about in the New York Times where people are interested in one-time connections and these one-time connections never, ever hold any kind of long-lasting commitment in the sense that folks are going to stay with you no matter what. There has to be a commitment of longevity and long-term ideas. So for those of you who are interested in those kinds of things, check this out. It's uh, just uh, type in uh, on Bing or whatever your search engine is, the hookup culture, first-hand account in the New York Times, and it will pop up. Let me uh, direct our attention now towards something that I think all of us are connected to and interested in. HB and I talk about this all the time. So before we go to our next break, we'll talk about this particular issue from the Wall Street Journal. This actually popped up on my reading this morning. And the article was entitled, A Better Way to Teach the Gifted and Everyone Else. Well, what was really fascinating to me was that somebody around America, and there are various excerpts, and you can go check this out again, Wall Street Journal, the title of the article is A Better Way to Teach the Gifted and Everyone Else. What I found fascinating was that the folks who wrote the article, and I'll read an excerpt here in just a second, but the folks that wrote the article and are talking about this brand new way of learning, i got to tell you, hang on now, this has been around for millennia. This is nothing new. In fact, when I was a little boy going through elementary school, we had something called SRA. And for those of you who are know anything at all about SRA, some of you I can just see your heads bobbing up and down right now, we had these color-coded uh, literary processes where you'd read this stuff and you'd go through and you'd take little tests and it would see whether or not you comprehended anything so that you could move on to the next level. And you went through all these different colors, and that was really cool because, you know, when you were little back in the 60s when I was going to elementary school, uh, colors were really neat. Well, SRA in elementary school is how I grew up. Guess what everybody's talking about now? <laughs> and they're talking about the same stuff. So here's the excerpt. 
This is what was said in the article I read this morning. Here it is, quote, Some schools have found a solution, solution to teaching and teaching gifted and everyone else, and that is what they are referring to as mastery-based education, which lets kids move on to new material once they've mastered particular content rather than when they've uh, sat at a certain desk for a certain number of days. Now let me pause here before we go on to the next excerpt because I want to make a, a very clear comment about this. This is nothing new. If for those of you who are doing homeschooling, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, that's exactly what we do all the time. People who are into paced education say, yeah, this is what we do all the time. There's nothing new here. This is mastery-based education. This is something that's been going on for a long time, but it seems that this is coming around again as a very important idea. So let me continue now with our excerpt from this particular uh, Wall Street Journal article, A Better Way to Teach the Gifted and Everyone Else. Here's the next excerpt. Quote, this flexible approach is especially well-suited for a new crop of schools called micro-schools. Micro-schools are defined by smaller class sizes, tech education, and personalized teaching. Now, let me just pause here and say this. We have this going on right now in Indianapolis. Chris Davis and Jerry Dr Davis, two great preachers, two great pastors who I'm working with right now, are, are doing something called micro-education. They are rehabbing and refabbing old rundown homes that are close to IPS schools. And they are targeting these particular places, going to the teachers who are saying, this is very important uh, for you to uh, get a connection to students. Who are the students that are most uh, having most difficulty in your classes? How can we come along to help those folks? And they do micro-education. There is a brand new micro-educational facility called the Cheney Center. It's down on Andrew J. Brown Street, right across from an IPS school. And what's happening there is where a school, 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 and what's happening there is where a school. And what's happening there is growing around Indianapolis and throughout the nation, and that is a commitment to what is called micro-schools or micro-education, where a small group of young people are helped in their educational processes. I'll read one more excerpt before we go to break. These micro-schools, they said, produce better outcomes for many students than the traditional K-12 model. We recently found a seventh-grade boy was performing at a fifth-grade level in math, but at a ninth grade level in English, once we adjusted his curriculum to match his personal strengths and weaknesses, he immediately became noticeably more confident and engaged, end quote. Now let me approach this from a decidedly Christian perspective. Christians are committed to what we refer to as incarnational theology. Incarnational theology simply means that I am with people, that you can't do anything else unless you are personally invested in proximity and place with other individuals. And so when we're talking about micro-schools or smaller groups or learning in a way that benefits the individual student, we're committed to what we refer to as incarnational theology. From a Christian point of view, I couldn't think of a better way to talk about something like this than to bring forward this Wall Street Journal article this morning, a better way to teach the gifted and everyone else. Go out and check that thing out. I think you'll find some interesting stuff there. We're going to take a musical break, and when we come back, we are going to be discussing conservative Christian colleges and the coming student drought. 
What is going to happen when we don't have enough students to fill those classrooms? You're listening to Warp and Woof Radio at RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. We'll be right back. And we are back. Warp and Woof Radio at RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. We are with you every Wednesday from 10 until noon. We have a platform that engages all kinds of things, but especially Titus chapter 3, 1, 8, and 14, those great commands, do good, do good, do good. We are looking for Christians around Indianapolis who are doing just that, doing good things so that the benefit is to the culture in which we live, the city of Indianapolis. I'm always struck by Jeremiah 29.7, which says that we are to do good things for the welfare of the city. I just got two uh, emails last night from a couple brothers in uh, town here who su- made uh, new suggestions to me. Hey, maybe uh, contact this person, have them on your radio show. Great, man. If you know of folks in Indianapolis, around town here, someplace, they're doing good works as Christians, I want to know about them. Shoot me an email at echo1957 at gmail, or just go to our cominiusinstitute.com website. You can find connections there for us as well. Well, in the last uh, section, we dealt with all kinds of different things. We talked about my class at IUPUI and Civil War literature. We talked about archaeology, the importance of history for the Christian. We talked about the hookup culture and the problems, of course, having uh, no commitments in uh, love relationships. And then we talked about the issue of education as it relates to uh, helping gifted students and everybody else learn better. We talked about microeducation. And I should add, by the way, that our brothers, uh, Reverend uh, Chris Davis and Reverend Jerry Davis, will be with us next week talking about their uh, connection and impact to microeducation and their work at the Cheney Center and across Indianapolis and really, uh, frankly, international. We're going to hear all about them next week. Can't wait to have them on the show. This particular segment, we want to start off with something that's uh, interesting, and that is that uh, we have uh, Dr. George Yancey, African-American academic from West Texas University, who wrote something uh, recently in a group uh, blog site called Pantheos, and he wrote a piece entitled Christian uh, Conservative Christian Colleges and the Upcoming Student Drought. The problem that he sees is this problem, this disconnect sometimes, that we have between uh, the demographics of who are the students coming up and those who are actually going to be sitting in the seats, the college seats, in years to come. And so one of the things that he emphasizes here in this particular piece, and I'll just make uh, reference here to an excerpt, (coughs) he says, quote, as a citizen I'm concerned about the lower number of individuals who have college training in our society. Will this impact the abilities of Americans to engage in critical thinking and thus the ability of our society to perform in ways to meet our needs? And one of the things that I was doing when I was a dean at a a small college here in town was saying to people all the time, the way that you grow an educational system is by professors and by programs. One of the things I developed when I was there was something called interdisciplinary studies where we see a connectedness across God's creation, Colossians 1.17, by him, by Jesus, are all things held together. Well, in Dr. Yancey's uh, perspective and from my perspective, we are on the same wavelength. He says that conservative Protestant colleges and universities need to create programs that will entice people to see that the unity of the world around us is unified through the creation that God has established in his world, not the least of which 
and here is the punchline, not the least of which is the necessity of having not only broadened understanding in programs uh, that include uh, studies in, uh, for those folks of color, so we're talking about African-American, Hispanic, Latino, we're talking about Asian-American, whatever, so that we see a broader cross-section, what normally is referred to as diversity. But beyond that, to hire professors of color. This is a huge and important issue for those of us who are committed not only to the Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, we are one body, one faith, one baptism, but this is also a commitment to our brothers and sisters, uh, to the unity of the church, and to say to the rest of the culture, we actually have something to offer that is broad-based, but very decidedly from a Christian vantage point. So Yancey's uh, perspective goes on, and he says this, I have written in the past about my research, which shows some of the steps conservative Protestant colleges and universities can take to increase diversity in their enrollment and improve graduation rates of students of color. Specifically, there's a need to implement student programs for a focus on minority groups, recruit professors of color, and to encourage student-led diversity groups. But it requires more than just doing the right programs. It's about using what we have in common as Christians to bring us together in an environment where we can grow in our faith. It's about building a multiracial Christian community with multiracial Christian education institutions, end quote. I absolutely agree with Dr. Yancey. Uh, he teaches at West Texas University. He's a great professor. I've heard him speak. He has a tremendous uh, way with words, not only in, uh, from a verbal speaking standpoint, but do check him out uh, online. Check out his articles and so on. You can go to Pat, Patheos, which is spelled P-A-T-H-E-O-S dot com and see all different kinds of folks writing there, including Dr. Yancey. Or you can just do a Google search, Bing search, engine search on him and check him out. You spell his last name Y-A-N-C-E-Y. Uh, Dr. George Yancey teaches at West Texas University and I am right there with him in terms of developing programs and professors and the importance of Christian school education. Um, you know, here we go. Jump in, man. Uh, no, I, I just, you know, in listening, um, and we talk about this all the time, the, the academic platform itself. What What is academics today? What is education today? And I don't think that we've done a really good job from a from a system, educational system of keeping up with, what is necessary to keep people stimulated in learning. That's right. Um, as we mentioned before, the brain is a very, very complex but simple organism. Seriously. I mean, it's yeah. not going it, – it doesn't receive well what it's not connected to. Well, tell everybody what you were – you and I were discussing at the break uh, concerning uh, having young people in at the table to discuss oh, what I they need. I think in any kind of program that you, you develop, if you don't have the people that you're trying to affect – and that you're trying to influence with that program, if you don't have some of them in the room to get their ideas and input on what's exciting, then how do you know if you're building a, a program that's going to work? Right. Um, you know, it's almost like when you feed your dog his medicine. Mm. You just don't take the pill out and say, here's the medicine, and hope that dog does it. You that's right. <laughs> find a place to slide it in, and that's yep. usually through the food. So, you know, it's like if we if we want people, seniors, to learn how to work computer computers if we want uh young people to want to grow up to be doctors uh we, we have to make this to where we're going to be engaging that, right. that entryway into this this field yeah. is going to be engaging this is one we of just the, don't do it we just don't do it and this is the reason why i am so committed to interdisciplinary studies 
By the way, if you're ever interested in checking some of this stuff out, for those listening live or on the podcast later on, uh, just go to warpandwoof.org. That's W-A-R-P-A-N-D-W-O-O-F.org. And check out uh, what I've written on interdisciplinarity or interdisciplinary studies. I've written a whole uh, peer-reviewed journal article on this uh, topic and the importance of it from a Christian vantage point. And HP is absolutely right. You know, if we're not invested in the people that are going in the programs with us, then we really are not doing a good job in seeing the outcomes that are going to be beneficial to them. Um, I think that we also need to ask the question, um, what are we what are we educating our people for? Ah, I mean, seriously, it. it was a real simple. It was a real simple model uh, from the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Yep. That era when um, real, real, real clean slate of where you were going to go and who you were going to be. Pretty right. much, as I mentioned, you know, post-secondary education was for those people who wanted to go be a, sp- a particular. Uh, doctor, lawyer, right. uh, whatever, accountant. Yeah. You had to go to the post-secondary education to learn how to be those things well. Um, if you did not, you graduate from high school, and we had some great manufacturing we jobs did. that you could go to. And if you didn't qualify for that, we had the military. That's right. And now, do we have some of the same manufacturing jobs? We have none. We have none. <laughs> uh, we don't have the same military. That's right. Uh, we don't have the same professions that are making our people uh, right. grow up to be. Uh, I, I was watching uh, Gary Dick the other day, and he had a 17-year-old kid who was the CEO of his business, and they made $4 million last year by him creating some type of application wow. that people use. But if <laughs> If, if we're not if we're not introducing our young people to the thing that they know more than anything, which is the tool they were born with their hand in, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to lose a lot. And, yeah. and that's the way the, the the world is flat. It's a global economy, um, and the competition is thick. And one of the things that strikes me as I hear you making these good comments is this: you know, I'm, I'm just talking at the at the beginning of our uh, program this morning about this class I'm taking on Civil War literature. What we need to do in a class like that. And what I will do as I utilize this information and ideas uh, coming up in the, the future is I will tie this to the relevancy of what's going on right now. So I even put a footnote in this, uh, in this particular paper, about how these people were being referred to as machines. Well, guess what? We have an immediate connection to what's called robotics today. And everybody is moving in that direction so we can use literature to tie these kinds of things into history to what's going on right now. And and not only robotics, but uh, simulation of man robotics. There you know, it the is. artificial yeah. intelligence world is, is one of the biggest. If you want to invest some yeah. money. It's exploding. <laughs> yes, yeah, exploding. Uh, but what they're really doing is eliminating man. I mean, yeah. from all positions, all qualifications. All, I mean, really, when right. you think about when you go into your grocery store. You might see two tellers, and then you can check out into different aisles, and eight of them will be checking yourself out. That's right. Uh, there, there is pretty much nothing that uh, artificial intelligence or robotics hasn't replaced, uh, from picking up trash to whatever. Right. And so, when we go back to the education side, what are we, what are we training these kids going to school to be, and what for? That's right. Uh, is is the question I think we need to ask. Absolutely. So we have to know what the outcomes are, and we have to invest in the people that are going to be uh, working in the future, which means our young people. 
When we come back after break, we're going to be discussing something that's going to make you chuckle and uh, maybe make you squirm after we come back to it. Uh, this is The title of this article is, What Happens to Your Brain When You Binge Watch TV? <laughs> this is from NBC News. What happens to your brain when you binge watch TV? We're going to discuss this from a Christian vantage point when we come back. You're listening to Warp and Woof Radio. We're going to take a musical break. Be right back. We are back. Warp and Woof Radio, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. Every Wednesday from 10 until noon, we come to you with interesting connections to people who are doing good throughout Indianapolis. But today we are taking on a new endeavor, and that is that we are engaging headlines from around the world, from around the nation, and talking about things and ideas and principles that we don't normally connect to. Maybe if we're talking about them, we don't necessarily talk about them or think about them from a Christian vantage point. So here's what I wanted to bring up for this particular segment, at least to begin the process, something I mentioned uh, going out just before our musical break. Here's the title of this particular article. It comes from NBC News. You can bing it later on and check it out. What happens to your brain when you binge watch TV? What happens to your brain when you binge watch TV? Now, what's fascinating about this is the amount of people that binge watch TV. Now, for those of you who don't have a clue what binge watching TV is all about, that just simply means because streaming has really kind of taken over the universe as it relates to entertainment and media and television, most programs that we watch today, we can watch on our televisions linked to our Internet access and we can stream programs like The Crown, which is a very f- popular show. Uh, and what binge-watching means is that you watch not just one episode at a time, but you watch two or three or six or a whole season of ten episodes all at once. That's called binge-watching. So this is some, some of what the article said. Quote, as for the amount of binge-watching we're doing, a Netflix survey found that 61% of users regularly watch between two and six episodes of a show in one sitting, end quote. Just stop there for a minute. Consider this. When you're watching two to six episodes, most episodes on most of these shows are about an hour long, usually 50-plus minutes thereabouts. You are committing not only an amount of time to this particular endeavor, but you're doing it all at once. But the thing that we discovered, Robin and I discovered, when we binge watch, in fact, we talked about this prior to even seeing this article. When we binge watch something, we say to each other, boy, it's too bad that show's over. We really enjoyed it. Well, according to this study, here's what else this particular article said. Quote, due to the chemicals that we are enhancing, uh, being released into our brain, this, these chemicals are making us feel good when we watch something that makes us feel good. So this is what they said. When engaged in an activity that's enjoyable, such as binge watching, your brain produces dopamine. The chemical gives the body a natural internal reward of pleasure that reinforces continued engagement in that activity. It's the brain's signal that communicates to the body, hey, this feels good. You should keep doing this, end quote. So think about that for a minute. The emphasis of these chemicals that are released into our brain when we're doing something that feels good. So one of my favorite things to do, I I wish I could do it all the time, but I can't. One of my favorite things to do is to watch football on Sundays. 
Now, football is actually ending here pretty quick, and I'm going to be going through withdrawal, and it's a real bad scene come February because there's no football on Sundays. What am I going to do with my time? Well, when I'm watching football, I, this release of dopamine into my brain is making me feel good. And in February, after the Super Bowl, I ain't going to be feeling so good anymore. Well, here's what the end of the article says. Quote, when binge-watching your favorite TV show, your brain is continually producing this dopamine, and your body experiences a drug-like high. You experience a pseudo-addiction to the show because you develop cravings for dopamine. Let me say that again. Your brain is continually producing this. Your body experiences a drug-like high. You experience a pseudo-addiction to the show because you develop cravings for dopamine. So let's just pause there and say this. From a Christian vantage point, we know this like everybody knows this. That is, that anything can become an addiction. I'll say that again. Anything can become an addiction. So if you're doing something the same way all the time and you can't live without it and this is something you have to have, that's an addiction. Why are you addicted? Well, in the case of binge watching, you're addicted because it makes you feel good. You're enjoying a program. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Nothing wrong with that at all. But understand that when you're binge watching, there's certain things that are going on chemically in your body that are attracting you to this particular television show and for which you are now committed. So be wary of that. Be understanding of that. That addiction does take place. And then be wary from a Christian vantage point again that you don't think about this as distraction. One of the issues that I think uh, confronts us from a theological point of view is that distraction can well lead to sin. And one of the things that we find on a regular basis is that our commitment to something that distracts us from our mission, our purpose, the reason why we're here, kingdom work from a Christian point of view, certainly cuts cross-grain against all of that. So be wary of addiction, understand what's going on in your brain when you're watching, binge-watching television or anything like that, streaming whatever you're streaming, watching video games, playing them, whatever that is, understand that those kinds of things are happening to us. Let me take one more uh, piece here just before we go to our next break, and I want to talk to you about something that I've just discovered uh, when I was out in Denver visiting family. I am absolutely blown away by what I'm discovering uh, in something called the BibleProject.com. So when I was in Denver, I go to visit family there two or three times a year at least. I always try to catch the preaching because they have tremendous preachers. Of course, I'm kind of biased because my brother-in-law, Larry Renault, I think the greatest preacher I've ever heard, is one of those guys. But what they did in this particular preaching was that they actually inserted a video teaching from thebibleproject.com. And it was this really grand piece on what does peace mean in Scripture. That's P-E-A-C-E. What does peace mean? And that was what was being preached on that particular day. It was absolutely stunning, fascinating. It was all kinds of good because what happens is that they link this great teaching, the great content, great Hebrew if you're in the Old Testament, great Greek stuff if you're in the New Testament, and they link this tremendous content to a visual uh, understanding of what does this mean. So just give you some examples. If you are interested in finding out about the book of Leviticus, my second favorite book, by the way, my first is Ecclesiastes, go to thebibleproject.com, 
and check out what they have on Leviticus because they've got this great little piece, five, six minutes, gives you a good overview of that particular book or any book for that matter. Maybe you're interested in a word study. So there are word studies, I'm looking at them right now on my computer, word studies on love, joy, hope, and peace. Fantastic stuff. Great connections uh, to the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. And you've got some of the greatest uh, Hebrew and Greek guys, some Old Testament, New Testament guys and girls, uh, gals that are doing this stuff. Fantastic work. Or if you're interested in specific topics of study. So if you're interested in how to study the Bible, or why is Jesus not returning as soon as we think he ought to return, or something to this effect, check it out. They've even got apparel. You can buy shirts there. I'm looking forward to getting my shirt. One of the cool things, and I'm speaking now to pastors, folks who are in the churches, check this out. If you contribute $10 a month, think about that now, that's $120 a year, your church can have full access to this website, and you will have all of these other things that are delivered to you. But otherwise, this stuff is free, and I highly recommend it, thebibleproject.com. Uh, please go there, check it out, thebibleproject.com. I really in- encourage everybody to uh, take a look at what we're doing there. What they're doing there is really fine work. We're going to take a musical break. When we come back, I want to address uh, an issue again with higher education. And please don't get turned off by this title, but this was the title. This is the Chronicle of Higher Education. This is a top-flight journal around in, uh, around the nation, around the world, where people are committed to thinking about higher education. This is the title, Why education, Higher Education is Drowning in BS. Why Higher Education is Drowning in BS. When we come back from our musical break, we'll discuss that. You're listening to Warp and Woof Radio at RadioNX.TV, the Cool Groove site. We'll be right back. And we are back, Warp and Woof Radio, RadioNext.tv, the Cool Groove site. We are on the cutting edge of technology. This is the new platform for understanding how we think differently uh, when we talk about the 21st century. And we're already 18 years in, 2018. Well, just before the break, I mentioned that we were going to discuss an issue of higher education again. And one of the uh, articles that I found interesting uh, this last week as I was reading was uh, something that actually has just a touch of uh, profanity to it. Uh, The title is Why Higher Education is Drowning in BS. Now, this comes from a top-flight educational journal called the Chronicle of Higher Education. And I emphasize this because here is somebody. His name is Christian Smith. He teaches at Notre Dame University, one of the top universities in the country. And he is saying that there are real problems in higher education. And I've got four excerpts I'd like to bring forward here today when we talk about this from his vantage point. These are some of the problems that he sees. So I want to quote uh, each one and then come back and make a few comments about each. The first one is, and this is a quote from him again, quote, BS is the university's loss of capacity to grapple with life's big questions because of our crisis of faith and truth, reality, reason, evidence, argument, civility, and our common humanity, end quote. Now, what's fascinating to me about this piece is when I go and talk with students at the public universities, what I find over and over and over again is that professors are not really interested in talking about the big issues, like Christian Smith says, truth, reality, reason, evidence, argument, and so on. Why is that? 
because first of all, we are so scientifically data-driven that we are not connecting to real people. One of the things that I found in my PhD research was that you have to have both things at the same time. You have to have quantitative research, that is data, numbers, you have to know what's going on, you have to have statistics, but you also have to have qualitative research. That is, you have to go and find people and have discussions with people and ask people real questions and then talked about those things with the data, connecting both of those two things together, and we come up with what we call in PhD circles a mixed method. Quantitative, qualitative, numbers and people, both those things have to go together. But when I was sitting with, with some of our students here recently, one of the things they discussed with me was uh, their comment about a psych class they were taking. Psychology, you would think that this would be a major course where you would discuss the big issues of life. Why are we here? Uh, what is the basis for right and wrong? How do we get along? Stuff like that. And they said none of that was true, that their professor in the focus of the class was all on data-driven research, and they never talked about the big issues of life in psychology. Now, that is absolutely blows my mind, I have to say, and it goes right along with what Christian Smith is actually saying here on this Chronicle of, of Higher Education piece, that the university has lost the capacity to deal with the big questions. Why is that? I'm going to say from a Christian point of view, folks don't want to deal with the big questions. They don't want to talk about what happens when I die. They don't want to talk about where did life begin, or do I need to give credence to a God that exists, and so on. I think some of these things are important. What do you think, HB? HB thinks um, from from the foundation of what we're trying to do and empower and educate people, and with today's technology, why are we still lacing out this old uh, high priced game? I like to call there it. There you go. It, it is it is way too expensive for what we're trying to do and, and build a community and a society. I just think that we're we're we're, we're taking people so far back before they can go forward yep. um, with the cost of higher education, post-secondary mm -hmm. education. Um, and I did all my coursework online. They made me buy books, Mark, and I never used the books because everything was online and all the research you did was online, wow. but you still bought the book. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking, okay, what is this really? Yeah. What, what, is, what yeah. is, is this about building a better community and a society of smart, critical thinking, uh, people who can analyze, synthesize, and evaluate situations, mm -hmm. or is it a system to keep um, just keep money coming, money coming, money coming, there you go. and then you figure it out after you give me your money. That's right. Yeah, that's, it is. that's what I think. And I'm, one of I'm not a big fan of structured institutions any longer. Yeah, I get I get where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I see your point. Yeah, and it's important, especially considering that we have this tremendous opportunity to be to have information at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips by a mouse click. Yeah, and, and so I'm thinking, okay, as we start doing this educational system, um, uh, teach the value of how to use these tools of the day while you're uh, inputting uh, research and, and collecting that data that you know that you're talking mm -hmm. about. About and going out and getting the qualitative data that's necessary by doing the face-to-face, hands-on, people-to-people type of communication that's going to still be necessary. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. As as a guy in the educational arena, I'm, I'm kind of just befuddled all the time when I watch structured mm -hmm. institutionalized education today and then all of them have to have after-school programs that should be doing what – What's happening? We're doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm What's thinking, going on during school? <laughs> really? Well, yeah. What are y'all doing? I mean, yeah. if this is why you had me come in after school to do this, what are you doing all day? Yeah. 
um, that I have to fix what you didn't teach them in the classroom. Right. So it's amazing to me. It's amazing. It's amazing when I watch church. And, I, man, I'm the most God-fearing guy, and I say it all the time. But when I watch the fundamental structure of how church works today mm-hmm. versus the people that we're trying to bring to mm-hmm. Christ, man, man, what me and you grew up on is yeah. not palatable for a lot of these young folks, and that don't mean the principles can't be the same. But we're still trying to serve the same dish, and it's stale to the young folks that yeah. we're trying to bring into the kingdom, right. so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I mean, the it, it, politics. We could go. We could go all over the the world of institutionalized, structuredized institutions, so yeah. to speak, and they're all dated. Yes, I think they're all dated. They have not <clears throat> caught up with the times where we're living. Um, I think America, we love this place, man. Glad I live here. But the days of bullying people are over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, just, yeah. we're superpower. That means nothing in 2018. It mm-hmm. just doesn't. Um, so, you know, I think we got a lot of, re- we have a lot of readjusting to do versus, you know, once we were to where we are. Right. Um, if we want to move forward and see the country move forward as, as this, this model that we say we are. Yeah. Teaching the tools of learning is huge. Uh, you know, you and I both would agree to the baseline ideas that there's, there's certain content that everybody has to have. We should all agree on basic principles of life. But after that, we need to be teaching tools and allow the creativity that is uh, inbred within people because they're made in the image of God to actually take over and actually uh, entice young people to be incarnationally involved in their own education. Yeah, it's, it's like you talk about, you know, um, the, the qualitative and quantitative data, and I would relay that to the educational process. Like you say, there are principles of reading, writing, right. math, certain right. principles that you cannot do without else you're going to be lacking uh, to be able to function. Right. But then after that, uh, today's world is so dependent on that authentic individual self that if you don't do the qualitative data, you might miss Right. Uh, the diamond in the rough. You might miss the next right. person who can take your business all the way over the top, mm-hmm. or uh, you might miss the next person who can discover the the code to take us to Mars. You know, mm-hmm. tomorrow instead of in twenty years. So, yeah. you know, that's that's where that lies. And I think a lot of times we have boxed uh, education around a grade point average instead of looking at the individual talents and skills of people. That's right. And uh, you know, man, ain't no ain't number one Harold Bell. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's only one me, and mm-hmm. I, you know, and I grab him every day and say let's go do this and yeah. doesn't work for everybody but you know but there's a lot of yeah i'm, I'm not saying it because i'm harold bell but there's only one mark echo there's yeah. only, and and i see so much talent uh by by getting to do this what i do and i and i watch the people get passed over mm-hmm. and you know not even thought about and maybe right. the fixer of a problem it's it's something man it is it is and we have to uh, broaden our perspectives and help uh, young people uh, be included in the educational process. I think we've probably said that a time or two even during this particular uh, episode. Uh, here's another thing that Christian Smith says in that same article, quote, BS is the farce of what uh, are actually fragment universities, he, he calls it, fragment versities, claiming to be universities of hyper-specialization and academic disciplines unable to talk with each other about obvious shared concerns, end quote. This is interdisciplinarity. How do we get the math and the science and the literature and the history people to all talk together? You need somebody that's going to be able to cross those bridges, and then everybody's got to be humble enough to realize, hey, maybe I don't know everything, and maybe I can learn something from somebody else. Here's a third comment Christian Smith makes. Uh, Quote, BS is the expectation that a good education can be provided by institutions 
modeled organizationally on factories, state bureaucracies, and shopping malls. Oh, my word. He then goes on to say, these universities processing hordes of students as if they were livestock, numbers waiting in line, and shopping consumers, end quote. This is exactly what we're talking about. We, in an earlier segment of this particular show, we were talking about the necessity of individualized learning. The fact that not everybody learns at the same rate or can learn the same things at the same time. And so what we need to do is, again, practice our Christian view of incarnational theology, and that is meet young people where they're at uh, with what they have already. And this is a huge concern for us uh, going forward. One last segment here before we uh, take our next break. Uh, Christian Smith, Notre Dame University, great uh, professor as well as a great writer uh, of sociology texts. This is what he says, BS is universities hijacked by the relentless pursuit of money and prestige, including chasing rankings that they know are deeply flawed at the expense of genuine educational excellence. And what he means by educational excellence is not something peddled by recruitment and advancement officers, end quote. This is a fantastic article. I highly recommend uh, you go Bing search it. Why Higher Education is Drowning in BS. This is Chronicle of Higher Education, Christian Smith from Notre Dame University. And I've just scratched the surface, frankly, of all the things that he's emphasizing here uh, about the concepts that are going on in universities. One of the things that uh, we're going to be discussing after we come back from this next break is uh, something that's really important to me. We'll be talking more about this in the coming days as we talk about a pro-life perspective from a Christian vantage point. We're going to be talking about some of the history of somebody I was studying when I was in high school and college. His name is Joseph Fletcher, and he gave us something called situational ethics, and his legacy is what I want to talk about when we come back from this break. You're listening to Warp and Woof Radio at radionext.tv at the Cool Groove site. We'll be right back. We are back, Warp and Woof Radio, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. There are days when I think to myself, you know, it would be really cool to just, uh, you know, take a video of what we're doing behind the scenes, you know, in between yeah. breaks. And then there are days when I think, no, that's not probably yeah, not a very good idea. A good idea. <laughs> <laughs> we just have a good old time. Two brothers in here having a great chat about lots of different things. We are back talking about some of the headlines that I have been reading about that don't really get much play in the national news media. And one of them I wanted to emphasize here today uh, was, uh, and this is going to be a bit stark and startling, so I would even put a little bit of a PG-13 rating on some of what I'll be reading here. This is about Joseph Fletcher, who uh, back in the 1950s and 60s, 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 who uh, back in the 1950s and gave the ethicists, that is, people who believe uh, or teach what is right and wrong or where right and wrong comes from, he gave us something called situation ethics. I remember in high school in the 70s, I was being taught this stuff. I remember we were dealing with it when I went to college. Uh, this, is, uh, this is somebody who had really has revolutionized how we think about right and wrong. Well, one of the big things that I want to emphasize here, and I'm getting this, by the way, from a journal called First Things, firstthings.com. Uh, check them out online. This is an article by Wesley J. Smith, 
Joseph Fletcher's Dark Dreams Becoming Our Reality. Uh, this is one of those journals that I receive at my house. I look forward to it and uh, read it extensively because of what it has to say to us. One of the things that uh, this particular journal dealt with in terms of Joseph Fletcher was to give us some of the backdrop to his real belief system concerning situational ethics. And I'm going to be reading some of this from this article that I have in front of me on the screen. And I want to be very clear that this is Joseph Fletcher's point of view, not mine by any stretch. And these kinds of ideas were are cut cross-grain against a Christian view of life and things. So here's one of the first things I want to mention in this article that's about what he actually believed and his view of ethics. Joseph uh, Fletcher uh, believed that physicians should uh, notice who are developmentally disabled young people coming out of the womb, being born, having very low IQ. And this is what Fletcher said about developmentally disabled people. And I'm quoting now. This is Joseph Fletcher. Idiots are not, never were, and never will be in any degree responsible. Idiots, that is to say, are not human. That's Joseph Fletcher in his own words, speaking about young people who are born uh, developmentally disabled or intellectually different, and this is exactly what he believed. Uh, He goes on now to say in another place, and I'm reading now about Joseph Fletcher and his history, and this is what he believed about genetic engineering and what he referred to as quality control, that is, young people coming out of the womb, being born into this world, Again, Joseph Fletcher, his words, quote, There is no such thing as a right to being cripp- bring crippled children into the world. If we choose family size, we should also choose family health. If the state is morally justified in repelling an unwelcome invader, why shouldn't the family be protected from an idiot or terribly diseased sibling, end quote. If you're sitting at your table, I I would imagine that you're probably falling off your chair by now. Listening to this podcast, you're probably wondering, what in the world is Eckel talking about? I am quoting Joseph Fletcher, his view of young people coming out of the womb, intellectually different, developmentally disabled, somebody who was born with a disease, and his view was quality control. Well, guess what? Joseph Fletcher's viewpoints invaded all kinds of arenas, including the arena of Planned Parenthood and bioethics, where we now are accepting the idea that late-term abortion, and we're talking about outside of the uterus, we're talking about bringing the baby outside of the uterus and killing that child before it is fully out of the mother's womb. This is an awful atrocity that all Christians uh, concerned about a pro-life perspective are absolutely dead set against. This has also given us something called assisted suicide. Fletcher was a eugenicist, which means that he was interested in killing people that weren't going to provide uh, any kind of quality uh, income or benefit to the human race. Let me tell you about somebody else who believed the same thing. His name, Adolf Hitler. You know that the first people killed in the Holocaust were not Jewish people? The first people killed in the Holocaust were World War I German veteran amputees. That's right. The first people killed in the Holocaust were not Jewish people. They were World War I German veterans, amputees, and Hitler called them 
useless eaters. Useless eaters. That's what Hitler called his own troops who fought during World War I and came back as amputees. That viewpoint is exactly the same viewpoint as Joseph Fletcher put out. He was, he would have, uh, if he had his way in terms of quality control, gotten rid of uh, young people who have Down syndrome, for instance. I have friends in churches around Indianapolis who have young people with Down syndrome. Imagine having somebody like Joseph Fletcher invested in the ethics of uh, what we should be doing uh, in terms of uh, life agendas. But we see these kinds of things being taught even in our uh, world today. We see a, a man like a bioethicist like Peter Singer, who is teaching at Princeton University and believes the same thing that Fletcher did about uh, actually terminating babies before they're born when we find out that they have certain diseases or certain disabilities. The atrocity of this is beyond pale. You can tell I'm a bit agitated. Uh, since I'm on air, I'm not telling you exactly what I think about everything. But let me tell you this, that this is an absolute pro-death position, and this uh, is absolutely against not only everything I believe, but against a pro-life Christian view of life and things. And I wanted to make sure to bring that forward today and highlight that uh, from a Christian vantage point. The next uh, article I'd like to mention takes us in a totally different direction. And this is based on a movie. So for those of you who know me, my last book was on movies. Uh, it's called uh, When the Lights Go Down, Movie Review as Christian Practice. And if you're interested, you can find it lots of different places. Come see me if you want a signed copy, all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to mention this new movie that's just come out in the last couple of months about Winston Churchill. The title of the film is The Darkest Hour. It is being rated as 8-point plus on IMDb, which means that it is a fantastic film. Everybody's saying great things about it. And I wanted to repeat something that you're going to find when you go to this movie, but uh, not only this tremendous action and actor that's taking place here uh, in terms of portraying Winston Churchill, but I wanted to read this particular speech to us uh, before we take our next break. This is one of the greatest speeches of all time, of all human history. And this comes from Winston Churchill in 1940 as he was now dealing with uh, Adolf Hitler and uh, the German Luftwaffe, uh, which was coming across uh, the English Channel to bomb England. This is what he said on air, on radio, Winston Churchill, his words, quote, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. One of the greatest lines uh, in speech history, we shall fight on the beaches, fight on the landing grounds, fight in the fields and the streets. Winston Churchill, if you get a chance, go see this fantastic film, The Darkest Hour, about how Winston Churchill took England, not only into World War II, but helped to defeat Adolf Hitler and the German armies during that particular time, uh, all of the allies that were with them on the fascist side. We're going to take a musical break, 
And when we come back, we're going to finish out our last, uh, the last few articles of our discussion here today, uh, thinking about things from a Christian vantage point. What are some of the things that I'm reading that I think need to be talked about a little bit more? You're listening to Warp and Roof Radio at RadioNX.tv at the Cool Groove site. We'll be right back. And we are back, Warp and Roof Radio, RadioNX.tv at the Cool Groove site. You hear us every Wednesday from 10 until noon. And we are looking forward in just a few minutes to our brothers from Ten Point Coalition to show up and do their uh, weekly broadcast. They are doing good work throughout Indianapolis, uh, helping to reduce crime uh, around the neighborhoods that they have uh, committed themselves to, and we're grateful for the good work that they do. Uh, we should also tell you that we've got uh, a great mixer coming up. Uh, because of the weather this last week, we had to uh, cancel the mixer because of the snowstorm that came through. Uh, but we've got a great one lined up for the 16th of February. Uh, come check us out about those kinds of things here at the Collaborate 317. Great things going on here. And we want to talk about them more and more because of all of the great work that they do. But at this particular section uh, session, uh, just before we end our show today, I wanted to hit at least two more ideas, one of which is uh, a, the title of an article from Inside Higher Education entitled, Where the Grass is Greener. And the study found that people who have humanities and social science PhDs, that includes somebody like me, who work outside the academy, that is outside the university, are happier than their tenure-track peers. <laughs> and it seems that they're happier because they don't have the restrictions of institutions. HP, what are you thinking about that? You got the big old smile going I'm, on. I'm just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. No, you know, we, we talk about this all the time and, and, and much love and respect to the people who put the time in to, to go out and, and reach that higher level of academia. But, um, the truth of the matter is, is, is that sometimes we become complacent with our own laurels. And we become uh, bigger than the the problem, kinda. And, That's right. And and I've told you, I, you know, in in working in different situations, I've met some people, and I don't even think it's intentional. I think it's the the platform that they sit on, and people answering uh, to you all the time, and all that, and you you become complacent with yes. uh, the real world a lot of times, and right. and so. The best way to not be complacent is to be out doing something and, and stretching yourself and, and right. taking the challenges much like you do uh, every day with your Ph.D. So yeah. Yeah, that, I just smile because, you know, we talk about this all the time. And it's some doctors and preachers, <laughs> business owner, presidents, mm -hmm. uh, nonprofit executive directors. It's a lot yeah. of people who fit into that that. Yeah, sure. uh, politicians who've been in their seat for a long time. I mean, yeah. um, the, the intensity to want to do more, I think, comes from continuing to learn and do more. Yeah, I um, think that's true. I, you know, it goes back to the two Ps, pride and power. If you have pride and power, if this is what's motivating you, it certainly cuts against what we believe as Christians, uh, that actually we should approach life with humility and that somebody else might know more than us. But, but Christians are, uh, not immune to that reality. There I mean, is. as scripture wouldn't say, as we said all the time, and that's it's right. going to be harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get in the gates of heaven. And, mm -hmm. and that simply means that with all that power, you have to be so, so, uh, conscious and you have to be so aware, um, and alert at all times That's because right. that power is addictive. Yeah, it is. This is a problem, of course, not just uh, in one area of life, but in all areas of life because it deals with the human condition, the problem that we are inherently corrupt because of our own sinfulness. So when we think about this from a Christian vantage point, we understand that there are two D words that are constantly at tension within us. 
the depravity that we engage, that is our sinful behavior and our corruption within us, but also the dignity that God has made us with because we're made into his image and we have worth, value, and dignity because of that. So, you know, those of us who ha- have gone through the process of earned PhDs, uh, we kind of, uh, you know, tease each other, you know, have some PhD jokes, I suppose, like anybody in any field might have. But in my particular field... Oh, no, get out of no, 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 go ahead. Yeah, jump in, man. Give me a good Ph.D. joke so, you know, if I hear one, I'll know to laugh. There it is. So uh, this is what Ph.D. stands for. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Pile it higher and deeper. Okay. How <laughs> <laughs> to get the room chocolate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I no, that's good, man. Pile it higher and deeper. So those of us who uh, have gone through the process, you know, we know that the process is you have to dig a deep hole and climb in and do some excavation. But the problem is... <laughs> If I could be so bold as to say this, the problem is that some people do that and they never come out of the hole, man. They they dig the deep hole and they stay in there. And so what HB and I are talking about this morning is getting out of that and getting involved and invested in lots of different activities. And frankly, again, I'm thinking about the professors I know at, at IUPUI, fantastic people. I just cannot say enough uh, good about what they do, their good work, their good teaching. The folks that I know there are fantastic educators, and I'm certainly glad to be a part of that process um, in furthering my own education and the master's uh, in English and literature is something we started our program with uh, today. So when we talk about uh, PhDs who are happier, we're talking about people who are out doing something totally different or at least engaged in other arenas of life beyond that which uh, they they normally engage. I'll just give you an example of this. So in my life, I not only do the Comenius Institute, I'm president of this nonprofit. We have a radio show. I meet with students on campus, all kinds of things going on. But I also do adjunct work. I actually still teach a high school class here in town for the master's study, and I'm going to be teaching these young people how to write a 15-page paper and then reduce it to 500 words to be able to speak it in front of their uh, peers and adults uh, in May uh, in five minutes. So we're actually training them not only how to communicate uh, verbally in the sense of written form, but also verbally in the sense of communication, being able to stand in front of other people. No, but but listen to what you said. You said you're going to first you're going to teach them how to write a 15-page paper. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to show them how to break it down to 500 words, and yep. then you're going to teach them how to give it in five minutes. That's right. Well, if education was like that every day in the school system, I think kids would be more excited about, you know, what they learn because yep. now they can actually see this is why I did yep. it. Here's the here's the finished result. Um, and a lot of times, man, we just have kids going to school. Yep, They're right. just going to school. They're just putting in the time. And uh, hand in this homework. And yep. then you don't know what that homework means. You don't know what that homework was, was worth what it was that it was supposed to do or yep. – Nobody ever said when you turn in this homework, now this is what happens mm-hmm. in the workplace, blah, blah, blah. So I just don't know. Man. You, I, you know. But, but you speak to an issue that's really important. We should really say this again on the air. And that is one of the things, one of the top three issues that business people look for, one of the top three issues is can you communicate? And that we're talking about written form and verbal form, both. And uh, young people, if you're out there listening, and old people, if you're listening, you usually talk like you write and vice versa. Uh, so if you, if you read somebody who's real eloquent with writing, you're probably going to meet a wordsmith in mm-hmm. talking. And, and, you know, that is a, that is one of those things that is transferable and you can see and use all the time. And, and right. one of those things, especially when you're teaching it, uh, young people grab a hold to because they understand now 
this is why this is important. That's right. And I think I think in a nutshell we have to uh, education is important. Yeah. Here's why. Here's why we got to yeah. tell the why. Here's why. We forget yeah. the why. Isn't that yeah. the truth? My word, my people, people, the why, the meaning, the purpose, the reason. Why do you get out in the bed in the morning? That's the huge issue right here. Really, really important stuff. For instance, you know, I just wrote this 1,500-word uh, paper uh, for this for my class today. I'm not going to read that to you on the air. I'm not going to meet you in the hallway and say, let me recite to you what I just know, because that, <laughs> that's for a certain purpose. I know what the why is to that particular course. I'm really glad I did it. I love it. I love that kind of learning. But if I'm going to meet you in the hallway, we're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about what's happening with you, what's happening with me. And that's the big distinction in terms of how we approach education. I wanted to deal with one more issue uh, before we say goodbye for today, and that is this very important question. Does money impact happiness? Does money impact happiness. And I actually have a YouTube presentation, just a couple minutes here. I wanted you to hear somebody from Catholic University. His name is Dr. Jay Richards. And he addresses this issue of happiness for Americans. Does money make us happy? To answer that question, we're joined by Jay Richards, assistant professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. You also know him as, of course, host of A Force for Good on EWTN. Jay, welcome back. Is there a connection between our finances and happiness? There is. I mean, it's not as simple as money can buy happiness, but if you look at happiness surveys, it's sort of common sense. If you're really poor and don't know where your next meal is coming from or how you're going to pay the rent, you're going to be miserable. It really is that simple. And so essentially income uh, and happiness correlate in these surveys up until about upper middle class. In other words, once you get to a certain threshold, say family income on average about $75,000 a year, more money adds almost no additional happiness. So really what you want to think of is uh, people that are really, really poor tend to be unhappy on average, mm -hmm. but being really wealthy doesn't really add very much to your happiness either. So as Catholics then, it kind of seems like balance here is the key, yes. right? I mean, balancing between money and the true happiness, which we know is not material. So how do we how do we view that? Absolutely. I mean, think of it as just the fact that we are these amazing hybrids of the spiritual and the material. We're not angels, but we're not beasts. And so we need to eat, we need to sleep, we need to drink. So those things matter. On the other hand, that's not full happiness. It's not the exercise of virtue that gives us the kind of eternal happiness we're looking for. So if you're already middle class uh, at Christmas, what you really can do if you're wanting to be happy rather than depressed at Christmas be a gift giver. Don't think about yourself. Think about others. Because what we know is that after about upper middle class, the people who give away their money in charity are actually more happy than everyone else. Boy, I can't get over uh, what I heard when I read that and heard that uh, being spoken. People who give their money away are happier than anybody else. That's Dr. Jay Richards, uh, and you need to check him out on YouTube. His uh, his work there as an economist is really good. Uh, I, I think this is a really powerful uh, statement, HB. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've dealt with a lot of headlines here that a lot of people aren't going to necessarily hear. Uh, out there in the mainstream world. What did you think about uh, today's episode? What do you think about uh, taking this show on the road that way? It was um, um, from a, you know, from a guy who likes to learn and likes to be educated. It was fruitful. It was, uh, it was enlightening to sit and listen, um, you know, and, and, and get a, another person's perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that, that, as I continue to try to become a wise man is to realize, and I used all those jokes with Fago and Skittles and all that, but mm -hmm. in truth, what I'm really saying is, is that 
Um, all I can really be conscious of and control is Harold Bell's mindset <laughs> and how he goes go. to do about what he does and my opinion about stuff. It really just doesn't matter that That's much. That's right. It, it just doesn't. So uh, when I take in knowledge, like today, I'm taking in knowledge, and now mm-hmm. how do I take this knowledge and maybe assemble it in something else that I do right. based off of what I heard today? That, yep. That's kind of, you know, how do I transfer this mm-hmm. as an educated guy and yep. say, okay, I learned some stuff that I might be able to use in another situation where the critical thinking or the, the academia of yep. yeah. <laughs> It needs to be applied. Yeah. So, yeah. so it was. It was good. It was. Yeah. We're uh, we're really anxious to do these kinds of things in the future. Uh, we're in a brand new year, a brand new season of Warp and Woof Radio. Uh, this next week, we will have Dr. Clyde Posley joining us as co-host. We're going to be having uh, the Reverends Chris Davis and Jerry Davis coming in, discussing with us the importance of what they do in micro education. And not only that, but with universities like IU and IUPUI helping disadvantaged young people uh, around Indianapolis have international opportunities for travel and for education. It's fantastic stuff. I can't wait for you to meet them on air. You have been listening to Warp and Woof Radio. We come to you every Wednesday from 10 until noon. Next week, as I said, Dr. Posley will be here with us. We're really anxious for that. We're grateful that you join us, grateful for those who listen to the podcast. If you have any questions about what we do or what we're about or what the why is for us, go to to CominiusInstitute.com. Check out all of the things that we have there, including a video uh, recordings, uh, podcasts, all kinds of essays there, all kinds of things to learn. And then my own website, warpandwoof.org, that's W-A-R-P-A-N-D-W-O-O-F.org, where there are over 600 essays as well as podcasts and videos that you can watch there. Uh, We hope that you use those kinds of things to your advantage. We're grateful to be with you again. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.